Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Over the past year, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought back to center stage the debate about the post-Cold War enlargement of NATO into Central and Eastern Europe. Many analysts have long argued that NATO enlargement has enhanced security in Europe, while others claim that its drawbacks have outweighed its benefits, in particular by damaging relations with Russia. Russia's invasion of Ukraine also raises important questions about whether the future of about the future of the alliance and whether it's fit for the purpose of maintaining stability and security in Europe moving forward. During today's episode, we will revisit the NATO enlargement debate from a historical perspective with two outstanding experts that bring very different perspectives about the motives and consequences of enlargement. These two have also teamed up together to co-edit an outstanding new book on the topic called Evaluating NATO Enlargement, Scholarly Debates, Policy Implications, and Roads Not Taken. So welcome, uh, Jim Goldgeier and Josh Schifferson back to Brussels Sprouts. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, For those of you who um, don't know Jim and Josh, Jim is a visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution and a professor of international relations at the School of International Service at American University, where he served as dean from 2011 to 2017. And Josh is an associate professor of international relations with the University of Maryland's School of Public Policy. His research focuses on international relations theory, international security, U.S. foreign policy, and diplomatic history. Uh, We should also note Jim Townsend is one of the authors with his own chapter in the book. So I know I'm sure we'll, I'm sure Jim will tell us a little bit about what he wrote. But um, I thought maybe as a place to start, Um, You both have very different views on NATO enlargement and its consequences. Um, Can you tell us, how would you summarize your views on this issue, just to give listeners a sense of where you're coming into this discussion? And Jim, maybe we can start with you, kind of just broadly speaking. I know it's a a big question, but your bumper sticker kind of ideas about NATO enlargement and its consequences. Well, my the bumper sticker for me is I've been supportive of NATO enlargement. I think it was important to do for creating security and stability across Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, but I also recognize that it helped to contribute to the deterioration of U.S.-Russia relations. But I end up emphasizing the former over the latter because I don't think U.S.-Russia relations would look markedly different in the absence of NATO enlargement. And so that's why I say, you know, the benefits were worth it, and uh, and it's it's important that the U.S. and, and allies did this. And Josh, uh, you know, as all good co-authors do, Jim and I somewhat disagree on this. Though, though we actually start from similar premises, we both recognize, or I certainly recognize, that it was understandable that the U.S. sought to enlarge NATO after the Cold War, especially given the Cold War legacy, which we're going to speak to later on in the conversation. I think. I also recognize the attractiveness of trying to bring stability to Central and Eastern Europe following the collapse of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet order. Uh, Jim and I disagree a little bit on what prospects for U.S.-Russian relations would have looked like absent NATO enlargement. I want to emphasize U.S.-Russian relations. These are very different actors than, say, Russian relations with its neighbors. Uh, So my bumper sticker is that NATO enlargement, although it had benefits, the, the costs in many ways really do outweigh some of the benefits, although 
I certainly understand the policy and recognize the advantages of the policy. I imagine that you all started this book well before Russia's invasion, but can you talk to us a little bit about your motivation for writing the book? I I, I started, um, I, I actually started the conversation, it was about four years ago that I called Josh. I'd been very frustrated for a long time with the nature of the debate over enlargement. I just felt like it lacked nuance and you know, the opponents were just so, you know, unwilling to see any of the benefits and just said this caused everything. It was the original sin that caused the collapse of U.S.-Russia relations, which I don't believe. And the proponents were basically, this was so great and we don't understand how anybody could have thought there was anything wrong with it. And I just thought, oh my God, we need a better debate. And so I thought that we should, uh, that I so I called Josh and I said, you know, we should we should work together on this. We we disagree about enlargement. If we could work together, then uh then that would be we could contribute to the debate. Josh then had the idea we should do a special issue of a journal. And we got together a group of authors. Originally there were um there were 12 pieces for a special issue that came out in 2020, uh, that with the title that that you mentioned at the beginning. Uh and then uh, there it went. It came out. We were happy about that. We did another piece on on the whole issue. And then in May of 2022, an editor, Paul Grave McMillan, came to us and said, we own the journal International Politics. Given the war, given Finland and Sweden, do you think your authors would be willing to update the chapters? And for a new vo- for a volume that would come out in spring of 23? And we checked with everybody and they all said yes. And then we decided we needed several new chapters, uh, one on uh, China and NATO, one on NATO and Ukraine, which we didn't have in the first, in the special issue. One really, we needed another one on NATO as an institution. So who better than Jim Townsend with his long experience on on that, and especially thinking about what it would mean to have Finland and Sweden. And then one one, uh, more on the Russian uh, uh, thinking, evolution of Russian thinking. And so, you know, it was it was great to have that have that come out. We actually changed the subtitle, and and the subtitle now is "From Cold War Victory to the Russia-Ukraine War," uh, because we really wanted to make sure that, you know, we could really sort of think about this broad sweep of evolution. But that's the that's the background, and we're 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 really hoping that it contributes to a better debate about this consequential policy. Yeah, and and so I'll, I'll, everything Jim said is entirely true. I just want to emphasize a few other 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 shades of nuance on this one. Um, you know, Jim and I have known each other, God, for since I was a young grad student, and so we've always had a really productive back and forth on NATO, on NATO institution, U.S. foreign policy, approaching it not just from the oh we're academics, let's think about it in an academic sense, but then let's talk about the policy trade offs, the policy issues involved, the policy making process involved. And so when Jim approached me to say, let's talk about NATO enlargement in a deep, sustained way, aren't you sick of these sterile debates? Not only was it an opportunity to work with someone I really respected and I thought we could have really productive back and forth, you know, because what is policymaking if not a give and take of ideas? But this would be a real opportunity to move uh, the NATO enlargement debate beyond not just this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, this is the worst original sin in American foreign policy but also to slice into what NATO enlargement is, what NATO enlargement means. Because, of course, one thing we emphasize in the chapters, and Jim alluded to this when he was giving the preview of what's in the book, um, 
NATO enlargement meant different things for different people, and its consequences differ for the different actors involved, whether we're talking about NATO as an organization, whether we're talking about security policy, defense policy, diplomacy. And so really adding nuance to this very lumpy, ongoing, sustained debate by bringing people who actually disagree with each other into a room and getting them to find common ground, but also bringing to light the specifics of their disagreement, we just thought could really contribute to policymaking and the very important policy conversations we're having today. Well, it's great to see you, you two. Uh, and I am just, I, I was so honored when you called and asked me to write a chapter. I can't tell you, I was just over the moon about that. And uh, and, I, and it was quite therapeutic for me. I really dove into that. And as you know, I, I made it autobiographical, not on purpose, but it just turned into that. Uh, and so I, uh, I just I want to thank you all for giving me that opportunity. Uh, but um, let me just say a couple things real quick, and then I got a question. But first, you know, just so that all the listeners know, so Jim Goldgeier and I go back to at least 1998 when Jim wrote the first book on on this on NATO enlargement. Uh, it was the first one, and he interviewed a bunch of us uh, in the Pentagon and, and this type of thing. And I and I've I've was just very impressed that that Jim at that time had picked up this as an issue because we were in the middle of it, you know, and in the late 90s, and we were going to have our first round and, and this type of thing. And having a historian academic come in and write a book about it was pretty thrilling. And so, Jim, I just want to tip my hat to you on that. And then, Josh, you know, when I left the Pentagon after the election of Trump, I was out with a lot of others. And, um, you know, you're in a bubble uh, when you're in the government in a lot of ways. You're in a Pentagon bubble. And I got out and I started hearing this, 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 what Jim Goldhauer was just talking about in the academic circles and other circles about the original sin. And I went, what? NATO enlargement, it was, it was fantastic. What do you mean? It was the most creative period of American foreign policy. And um, uh, and then Mary Serrate had called me also about her book, Not One Inch. And then I talked to Josh. And, uh, and he and I went back and forth a bit on it. And then he started scraping away the bubble <laughs> that I was in. And so by the time I had shed the Pentagon, I began to understand that, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's another side to this. Uh, and so I, sh I was uh, a bit of a different person. So Josh, I salute you for that. So, <laughs> so, so my question for you both is this. Um, so where are you all now uh, on the not one inch bit? Uh, you know, uh, have you all moderated since, I mean, Josh, since you and I talked in 2017, um, uh, and Jim, I've never really talked to you about it either, but where are you from that, from that original story of there are these secret documents, you know, that lay out in those early meetings with, uh, you know, with, uh, after the wall went down, some kind of promise made, blah, you know, that whole thing. So where are you both on that? Start with you, uh -huh. Jim. Well, Josh should go first because he's written uh, more about this. But I do, I do have uh, uh, something I think to add. So, I, I mean, look, I, I, I think at this point, it, it, this question over whether there was a promise, a commitment not to expand NATO beyond the inner German border, perhaps not beyond East Germany. I think the term "promise" and "pledge" obscures the issue. I, I think it's very clear if you look at the diplomatic record, and we've had, even had documents come out from 1991 and a bit later, that there was an understanding, there were assurances given that the United States would probably, would, would almost certainly not expand the alliance into the former Soviet sphere uh, after the Cold War. I, I think that was very much part of the American diplomatic record. 
The flip side of that is we also know that international politics is fundamentally about power. And any good Soviet policymaker at the time should have had the foresight to say, look, my country is declining rapidly. I'm falling apart at the seams. Why would I believe why should why would the Americans uphold this deal? So in a very odd way, this this is a I believe that there were assurances given. I believe there were uh, commitments given. I believe the Soviets were told that the United States would not expand NATO and in doing so uh, seem to exploit the collapse of the Soviet order. But at the same time, the Soviets uh, should have had the foresight to realize this was not a deal that would be easily enforceable, that would be easily kept intact. And so um, I, I come down to what I said, you know, five, six, seven years ago at this point, but with the with the also a, a more nuanced understanding of how diplomacy operates. Yeah, you know, my my perspective, um, first of all, it's really important to note that Josh has done just incredible documentary digging on this and other issues and really helped us. Jim, you were kind enough to mention my NATO enlargement book from way back when, which started the story in 1993. And Josh has really shown that you got to start the story in 1990. He's got all these documents from the HW administration. On this particular issue, I sort of take a more 30,000 foot view that the assurances that were given were assurances that the United States and its allies would not take advantage of the Soviet and then Russian retreat from Europe to undermine Russian security. And I think the U.S., from a U.S. standpoint, the American decision makers at the time believed that they delivered right. on that, reducing the number of American troops in Europe, signing conventional arms control agreement. Uh, you know, trying to change NATO from a military alliance to a more political organization, uh, really fundamentally seeking something different. The partnership for peace that Russia was included in, the uh, including Russia in the implementation force at the end of the Bosnia War, the NATO-Russia Founding Act. I think the United States, the U.S. decision makers believed that they were not undermining Russian security with the steps that they took. And so in that sense, they weren't violating assurances that they had given. And the Russians looked at it and were looking and thinking, what the heck? Right. Like NATO, this Cold War alliance is not only staying, but expanding. And this whole thing is coming closer to Russia. And I just think those are just unbridgeable differences in perspective. But I do think from a U.S. perspective, at least the Americans felt like they were doing everything they could yeah. to, in a process they knew the Russians didn't like, right. to try to calm the reaction of the Russians that, you know, this was going to really harm them. They, and they took, were, con I, I took concrete right. steps. I think that's right. The Russians had a disagreement with the direction of American strategy. And American policymakers sincerely tried to offer operational concessions to the Russians to make the strategy go forward while still bringing the Russians on board. And so there's just there's a tragic element to this. And, and I think that's something we've both come to really appreciate as we've gone forward. Um, actually, just one funny story. I, I was in Kew, uh, the British archives, last summer digging through British files on NATO enlargement because their records are far more declassified than the American records. And you can go through them and just see the Russians having these conversations, the Russian policymakers after 91, having these conversations with American and British officials, just lamenting the direction of American foreign policy. 
and the Americans scratching their head and the British scratching their head and going, but well, we're offering all these concessions. What are the Russians so upset about? And you actually see the crisis begin to the, the very early seeds of the current crisis begin to emerge because Ukraine plays a large role in these conversations. You know, that's so interesting because as I was writing my chapter, I was going through, I, ju I just used the NATO documents. I just used summit and, and ministerial communiques. And you could, as I read them in, in sequence, you know, I had been there for almost all of them. But when you read them in sequence, you could see how the, the alliance and particularly the U.S. within the alliance was striving to try to find something that would make the Russians happy. You know, and finally giving up, uh, and uh, and uh, and I tried to chart that in that article, uh, uh, that that chapter, uh, and uh, it's a. I thought, you know, what really saved me in a lot of ways is I was I was trying to find an ending was what James Baker said. If you remember, uh, Baker wrote an appreciation for Gorbachev when Gorbachev died. He wrote an appreciation of Gorbachev in the New York Times, and he said. Maybe we should have tried to do more for Russia, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, we tried, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was. And so I used that because it was really from the man who was president of the creation, if you will. Uh, and I ended up saying, you know, we try. I said, I said, you know, maybe maybe Baker is right in this, but we tried everything. We tried everything. I talked about that story uh, where I was at the first meeting of the um NATO Russia Council at, at at ambassador's level. I was in this chair because they, we couldn't find the ambassador, and so there I was. And how it just was a flop. Uh, you know, the, the Russians would—they were just going through the motions and were pissing all over it. So it was just you could—we were so frustrated. You know, that just was nothing there. But 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 that's just a comment. I'm going to set aside. Poor Andre is furious with me. No, I'm sure you're not. But. But uh, but just your just, show, but, Tim. Your world. I just live in it. <laughs> <laughs> but but just just one thing, you know. And I've always pointed the finger at the Bucharest summit and the communique. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ukraine and Georgia will be in the alliance. That British uh, bit of drafting that they did to get us at to get us to consensus, you know, to pass that communique, that summit communique. But I've in that in my chapter, and I, I I really highlighted that as for me being really the beginning of the end. This this the, it was, and I point the finger at the Bush administration as, you know, it's my way or the highway approach uh, that really dismissed Putin uh, despite warnings from Bill Burns and others. This is a red line, et cetera. The Allies didn't want to do it, but by God, we were going to have it. And that halfway measure that the Brits came up with got us consensus. But it put us on a bit on this road that we're on. And I was just wondering what you guys thought about that, because I never got feedback on what you thought about my articles. I mean, my chapters. I'm, so what did you think? Did you, do you agree with that or is that not as big in your mind? Yeah. I, and I think one of the things when you think about enlargement, we Josh and I have another piece that we did for um, for a different volume where we compare the policies that was that the policy chosen to alternative policies. And so, uh, and compare the pros and cons. And, and we argue that the main alternatives to the policy that was chosen were three. One was do partnership for peace, which was established in 1994 and was a, you know, was an idea that was basically there to forestall enlargement. That, that was yeah. one alternative. A second was you could, you know, could have invited Russia to join. And that was, you know, discussed on and off for about 10 years after 1991. And the third is do some of the enlargement that occurred, but not 
as much as occurred. And mainly there, you know, for me, I think Bill Burns in his memoir, Back Channel, I, I think he really makes a strong case that the Russians didn't like the 1999 and 2004 uh, rounds of enlargement, but they accepted that. And there were bigger fish to fry in the U.S.-Russia relationship in those in, in 99 and 04. 99, you had the Kosovo War, which was a much bigger deal. 04, you had the Orange Revolution per Putin. You know, that was a that was a way bigger deal. But Burns argues, you know, because as you say, Jim, I mean, he he was warning from Moscow in 07 and 08 as the ambassador. This is this is a just don't go there on Ukraine and Georgia. And that the 2008 Bucharest Declaration was a disaster. And I would argue it was a disaster because it was sort of the worst of all worlds. It said, well, they're going to be members of NATO, you know, with, without even having to go through, you know, you were supposed to go through the membership action plan to, you know, be worthy of it. We were just saying, well, they're going to get, they're going to be in. But it also gave them no path. Yeah. So they had no path to membership. It angered the Russians, and uh, it was really, it, it, it was a huge, yeah. huge mistake. No, that's it, it right. lit the fuse. Yeah. It really lit the fuse, I think. It was a slow burning fuse, but it lit it. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and so the, the, the other two points I'll add to this, which I find really frustrating from an American foreign policymaking perspective. Number one, as far back as the late 90s, the Russians were telling American officials and British officials, and you could again find this in the, in the British documents, documentary record, that Ukraine and the Baltic states parenthetically, but really Ukraine is a, is a red line, is a vital Russian interest. And if NATO touches Ukraine, it's going to be a massive, massive problem. They actually say, you know, it'll generate a crisis. Um, this is in the late 90s. So, so there's something about... As you were saying, Jim, uh, the Bush administration's mindset, kind of thumbing their noses at uh, some of the policy, some of the other actors involved, that really seems to cause this problem because everyone knows what 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 the issue is going to entail. That, that that's uh, problem number one, and then problem number two w w with Bucharest isn't just that uh, there's no path for Ukraine forward. Uh, it, it's also that it, it it puts NATO credibility on the line, where if you don't re regularly perform and say that Ukraine will eventually be a member, that Georgia will eventually be a, a member, NATO's credibility as an organization to follow through in its commitments also begins to go in question. So it's a problem both in terms of what the what the alliance is committed to, but also in terms of how it affects the alliance's credibility. And it's even more befuddling because if you recall in 2007 – uh, that's when Putin at the Munich Security Conference begins to really yeah. push back against the NATO expansion. So it's this moment in time when there are all these warning signs, not just from Bill Burns, but also from Putin himself, that this is yeah. going to be a crisis. And so this only adds to the tragic element of uh, yeah. that, 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 that Jim and I were capturing the volume. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is worth noting, though, that, you know, even despite that and what I mean, in 08, you have yes. the Bucharest Declaration, you have the Russia-Georgia War. Right. Obama comes in in 09 and you do have reset. a reset. I mean, I so know. Yes. cooperation yes. cooperation was possible even after that. So, as long as you as long as you stop it, right? As long as you stop the, And the, of course part of it was that Obama was basically giving Putin assurances, we're not going to be moving forward on this thing that's really right. upsetting to you. That's and right. you know, they both I mean I mean, you know, Medvedev of course was the president, uh but Putin was there as the prime minister and uh and Obama uh you know, had things he wanted from the Russians. The Russians had things they wanted from the U.S. And and those, uh, right. you know, you 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 had cooperation. 
That's so right. I guess that's the the fundamental question. Like, I mean, I'd love to hear from both of you. Do you really think that NATO expansion is at the root of the current war? I mean, there's obviously very different views and opinions and assessments about whether that's the case. So, I mean, my view on this is that it was a it, there there are multiple causes of where we are today. Um, I mean, it's it's overdetermined. I. I think that, you know, the precipitating crisis in 2013, 2014, when Russia did the first invasion of Ukraine, was Ukrainian moves towards the European Union. Right. Um, and we, we have a great chapter in the book by Kim Martin uh, that looks at the way the Russian military viewed NATO enlargement. And she argues that, you know, they did not view it as a threat. They understood the changes in NATO. I think we can see that the Russians really don't believe there's a threat from NATO because they've moved all their forces out of the north down to Ukraine and, you know, left themselves wide open. So if they were really worried about a NATO invasion of Russia, they they wouldn't have, have done that. But there's no question that, you know, that NATO contributed, that the enlargement contributed to the deterioration of, of relations. I just think we by by putting when when people put the emphasis on enlargement, they're letting Putin off the hook for his imperialist views that basically this country should not Ukraine should not exist as an independent country. This territory belongs to Russia, and we're taking it. And I I think to my mind, this remains the fundamental problem for European security going forward. How deeply held are these imperialist attitudes in Russia? Because they seem pretty deeply held. It's not just Putin and it's not just the elite. They seem really held by the population. And I don't see how you have stability and security across Europe if the Russian Federation still thinks that there's parts of territories in other countries that belong to it and that they should be able to go in and take it. So I, I think that when we emphasize enlargement, we should acknowledge enlargement's contribution, but we let them off the hook. Those people who are arguing everything is due to enlargement. And if it, NATO hadn't done that, you know, Putin would have let, left Ukraine live in peace. I don't, I don't think so. I don't buy it. Uh, Josh, I'll let you, I'll let you chime in. But like, this is part of the nuanced discussion. It's not the right. precipitating and the only factor, but it's also not entirely in a cause. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so, so I think I'm a little more forward than Jim Golgar on this one, though, although very similar in a lot of ways. Um, Look, I, I think we should be clear about what NATO expansion means to Russia, or at least how I've come to understand what NATO expansion means to Russia. I, I've always understood it, as Jim Goldgeier alluded to at the outset, as creating a security order in which Russia, even on the continent in which it inhabits, would be a second tier player. Right? NATO expansion is fundamentally about the structure of European security. And if we buy the, Amer the United States' own rhetoric on this, kind of the lodestone in which key dip diplomatic, economic, and uh, grand strategic decisions are, are made. And so NATO expansion to Russia has always been, will you kind of have a predominant voice in the terrain of the continent that you inhabit? And in that sense, NATO expansion, I think, played a major role in triggering the crisis that led to the invasion. I agree with Jim Goldgaard that the invasion as a military operation cannot be explained separate from the weird stuff that's going through Vladimir Putin's brain, perhaps the other Russian uh, elite. But I think the combination of an expanding alliance that generated, as it being Bill Clinton and others have acknowledged, um, Russia being in something of a second tier status, kind of in a corner by itself, 
the combination of growing uh, U.S.-Ukrainian ties and other European security ties with Ukraine, which are understandable given the events of 2014. This isn't to you know, get, give it to, to cast blame, just noting the phenomenon. And the fact that uh, Russia was warning throughout 2021 that further development of NATO-Ukrainian ties would probably generate a crisis if Zelensky didn't listen to what Russia's absurd, in some sense, demands were. But nevertheless, given all this, we're talking about a situation where there was going when the prospect of NATO expansion and Russia's further exclusion from uh, having a predominant say in terrain on its own border that used to be part of Russia w- was going to generate a crisis, illegitimate or otherwise. Just uh, We're just noting that it was likely to generate a crisis. Um, I think the only way you explain an invasion, though, under these circumstances is this weird Russian sense that time was not on Russia's side, that only military force would be uh, a solution to the problem. So I don't think NATO expansion caused the war. I think it was a predominant cause of the situation that led to a war. But the war itself, we need to acknowledge, is fundamentally about Russian choices, and we should not let them off the hook on this one. So I have a question for you, too, that it's a great ending question, but I, but I just can't stand not asking it. So I'm going to ask you. So you get George Kennan in a room. And George Kennan, as you know, said back before he died uh, on his deathbed, probably, he said, he said, what a mistake, a historic mistake, a huge mistake NATO enlargement will be. And he was waving the West off from enlarging NATO. I'm sure you all remember that. I do. <laughs> so you get George Kennan in the room right now. So what would you say to him? Um, what do you think he would say to you? Do you think he would say, I told you, I told you all not to do this? Or uh, Jim and Josh, would you say something to him like, yeah, I know we heard you, but, but we went ahead and for good reason. Um, what would you say to Kennan? Uh, would you find some something in the middle, uh, a compromise, or would you end up having fisticuffs with George Kennan? Jim Kohlgaier, tell me, you're in the room with George Kennan, doors closed, what do you say? So, um, yeah, I don't know if it would come to fisticuffs, uh, but I, I think that it would have been a historic error not to have enlarged NATO. Uh, I think that it would have been extraordinarily damaging for Central and Eastern European countries that, remember, they wanted to join this alliance because they wanted to be part of the West. A lot of people tend to sort of look at NATO enlargement as this, well, the U.S. you know, decided it was going to do this and foist this on Europe. And these countries wanted to come in. I think it would have been very hard Given that there's Article 10 of the treaty allows for this open door, I think it would have been hard to say to them, no, sorry, there was a line drawn in by Joseph Stalin in the 1940s, and that's just the way it's going to be forever. Um, would you, would you I, convince? I, think, I don't think I would convince. The reason I wouldn't convince Kennan is because I think Kennan would have been more accepting of these Russian imperialist views that I was just discussing. Yeah, I think that he was perfectly willing to accept that Russia was imperial, an imperialist country, that these lands, I think he would have been more willing to accept that these lands did belong to it. And I think he wouldn't have seen this part of Europe as important for the West. I mean, he made those views clear decades earlier, uh, uh, you know, how he felt about Central and Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe. Uh, you know, he was a very much a Northwest European focused person uh, yeah. who, you know, let's not forget, was a pretty racist individual and, yeah. you know, didn't care about a lot of these 
population. So I, I think, you know, he was focused on how, how would Russia react to all this? And so, of course, he was correct that Russia was going to be extremely unhappy about this. And it was important to listen to that view. Uh, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't have, uh, you know, wouldn't have punched him out, but, uh, you know, I would have tried to at least to explain that, uh, that this was important, uh, for the United States to pursue and, and the effort to try to do it in a way that acknowledged Russia's concerns about it and tried to find ways to manage it. Uh, I think the United States did that as we talked about before, you know, when the United States didn't do that, when the alliance didn't do that was 2008 with the Bucharest summit declaration. Right. Yeah. I think that's when we stopped trying, frankly, yeah. Josh, um, over to you. Um, you're in the room with, with Kenan. You've always wanted to be there. I know as a diplomatic historian, there you are. After you get finished talking about the long telegram, then you're going to start talking about this. And so where, where do you come down in your discussion with Kenan? Well, first, I want to ask him how he's alive. The, 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 but though after <laughs> a, a, after that, um, you know, I, I'd actually wind back a little bit because I, foreign policy is about trade-offs, strategy is about trade-offs and opportunity costs, and I think there can be arguments on both sides. There, as Jim and I are, Jim Goldgeier and I are illustrative of, as to whether NATO enlargement was necessary, vital, important, ancillary, whatever it is, to American foreign policy, American well-being, separate from European well-being, separate from Russian well-being, so on and so forth. So I'd actually want to turn to George as a diplomat, as a policymaker, and as an academic and say, so what were the alternatives that you could that you would have uh, supported? Tell me what the range of options really would have been. Because, right. because I, you know, we are, we on this podcast, we, we in policymaking are so wrapped up in the day-to-day grind, we're so wrapped up in what's happening, that sometimes it's hard for all of us to step back and actually ask the question, what are the alternatives? So I'd be really curious to hear from someone like Kenan, who is operating at a 50,000 foot perspective, tell me what the alternatives are and how you think this nets out for the different people in the different countries, the different actors involved. And so I think yeah. that could actually generate a really interesting conversation, not just about NATO enlargement, go forward or not, but also what were the roads that could have been taken, that haven't been taken, and that we could pursue today. Right? And because at the end of the day, yeah. we still have to live with Russia, we still have to live with NATO currently. So the question becomes, where are we going uh, in the future? And I certainly don't have an answer for this. We, we've been looking at this retrospectively, but we're in the middle of flux in foreign policy and international security. So what do we do going forward now? I mean, we're kind of at another pivotal moment, right, with, with NATO, where people are now debating about whether or not Ukraine should be brought into NATO. Um, and as so I guess to your point about what are the options, or I guess my question is, based on this work that you have done, and as policymakers are now grappling with what they will do with Ukraine, but also with other Moldova and others moving forward, what are the factors or the considerations that you think need to be top of mind for policymakers? Was there anything that jumped out at you from previous rounds of enlargement and kind of where we've ended up that you really hope policymakers are thinking about now um, in this moment? Great question. Well, I, yeah, I don't, it is a great question. You know, I, I don't really anticipate, I hope that, you, that Ukraine will become a member of the European Union. Um, I, I don't really anticipate 
that it's going to become a member of NATO. I think the United States and, and the West need to support it as much as possible and continue to help it defend itself long into the future against the potential for Russian aggression. I actually think the, the bigger issue for American policymakers and European policymakers, because um, enlargement is mostly done, really. I, you know, I, I, I don't think we're going to see others come in anytime in the near future. The bigger issue is that Europe remains hugely dependent on the United States for security. And, and the United States wanted that to be the case at the end of the Cold War. United States wanted to continue NATO so that the United States would be remain in charge of European security. And it sort of looked at history to explain why, you know, if the United States didn't stay in charge, Europe would, you know, get into conflict again. But it's left the Europeans so dependent and nothing is it, it, this war is just emphasizing that. I mean, it's just emphasizing the point that they are still hugely dependent and they're not changing in any way. I mean, the Germans are talking about things, but the debate is not fundamentally different. And so I think this is the looming issue, especially for the United States that really does want to get to the business of focusing on the Indo-Pacific, focusing on China. Uh, this war has just reminded us how dependent Europe is on the United States. And I don't I, I think that's what we should be working on and focusing on. Can I, but Josh, I'll let you answer, but Jim, before we hit record, we were talking about kind of pivotal moments as you saw them. And I, I wanted, I wanted you to repeat that here, even for listeners to, to hear, which was your pivotal moment of Bush's decision to stick with NATO. Cause it's, it's directly related to this point. So can you just right. talk about yes. that period? Yes. I mean, you know, Bush, uh, I mean, that was a big decision at the end of the cold war, what what should happen with NATO? There were a lot of people saying, well, Cold War is over. We won. It was designed against Soviet Union. Soviet Union is gone. We could just disband it and, you know, let what became the European Union take over European security or let the, what became the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe take over. And the U.S. position was pretty, was quite firm. You know, we when we left Europe after 1919, you know, we got a World War II decades later. We stayed after 1945. We're going to stay after 1991. We're going to help make sure it's stable. And so they put their eggs in the NATO basket. And that uh, we have a chapter uh, in the book by Paul Van Hooft uh, from the Hague Center for Strategic Studies, who looks at how that NATO, the decision about focusing on NATO meant that the European Union could never really develop uh, as a security actor in Europe. And so I think there were good reasons for that 30 years ago. Uh, but I think we should be thinking now and the Europeans should be thinking now, how can Europe take on more of this burden and how could the United States reduce its role in Europe? But obviously, we're not going to do that in the middle of this war. Uh, and, right. you know, without the U.S., we wouldn't have. Uh, Ukraine wouldn't be in the position that it's in of of, of being able to to have pushed the Russians back and and to you know prevent the Russians uh, from uh, from taking more territory and uh, so we, we the, obviously the United States is needed but I think as a long term issue you know that decision was pivotal to to keep NATO as the main actor in Europe and keep the United States in charge and I think we really hopefully over the long term Europe will be able to do more and the United States won't need to do as much. 
Josh, anything on kind of lessons learned? Although, Jim, I'm coming back to the Ukraine issue in NATO because I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily. So, But we'll come back to that. But in terms sure. of kind of lessons learned. Sure. Uh, so let me let me answer the lessons learned. But I, but I also want to comment briefly on, on the pivotal moment of 1990, because I, at this point needs to be underscored. Um, the H.W. Bush administration decided soon after, well, even before the Berlin Wall fell, but then really after the Berlin Wall, Berlin Wall fell, that the United States was going to remain in Europe and it was going to preserve NATO if at all possible, even in the face of these Herculean geopolitical shifts accompanying the end of the Cold War. And as Jim alluded to, once you do that, NATO expansion follows pretty pretty neatly and kind. And in fact, by mid-1990, the U.S. is discussing how to expand NATO. But I want to underline this for a second, because the Bush administration is often seen as this kind of you know, careful protector of the legacy of American foreign policy. Um, it's actually a rather radical decision that the U.S. made in 1990. If we think about the the grants of American foreign policy, staying involved in European affairs or international affairs, absent a great power competitor, it had never been done before, ever. And so to say, to say we are going to keep the U.S. involved in Europe, keep NATO intact, and already begin discussing American foreign policy, this is not a conservative foreign policy choice. This is actually a fairly radical choice, using, of course, conservative instruments. But it's actually a radical change in the grand soup of American foreign policy. So 1990, I think, needs to really be looked at much more as a pivotal moment because it shapes so much of the world in which we inhabit today. That's point number one. Then, then, then you, you asked about lessons learned, Andrea, and, and I think there are two key lessons that I took away from the study that should influence any discussion about NATO enlargement going forward. Um, one is that enlargement, and I, and I think Jim Townsend's chapter actually captures this very, very well. Every time you expand NATO, you expand the suite of countries that have to sign up for any NATO decision. So perversely, expansion actually undermines organizational unity, except under really rather extreme uh, circumstances, or it can impede organizational cohesion. And so further enlargement, particularly to a case like Ukraine, where there are massive intra-alliance disagreements already over how much Ukraine should be supported, how much Russia should be opposed and beyond, I think generates real concern for, or for the cohesion of the alliance going forward. That's point number one. And then point number two, which Jim uh, and Paul Van Hoof's chapters and, and, and uh, Sarah Mahler at Georgetown also allude to this, is that uh, when the expansion occurred, there was actually relatively little consideration of how the alliance was to provide military security or defense for the different countries taken in. Jim Townsend's nodding his head on Zoom right now, so I'll just shout out to the listeners. Um, <laughs> And, and and look, there were good reasons for this. You know, at the height of American dominance after the Cold War, it didn't seem like there would be real competitors. Uh, Russia was fairly uh, innocuous for much of the 1990s and 2000s. At least it was hard to imagine what a U.S.-Russian or NATO-Russian war would look like. Um, so it was easy to kind of bracket questions of defense and military security. Uh, tragically, and I really want to emphasize tragically, the Ukraine war has really broken that mystique. And so I think future considerations of NATO expansion need to ask the, how will the alliance actually do the hard tasks of defense that it did so well during the Cold War, but uh, provided less attention to after the Cold War. So that's one of the key insights for me, that we're bringing military and defense considerations back into NATO expansion discussions in a very robust and tragic way. Yeah, that's a very good point. 
Jim, I want to come back on, I mean, because you were fairly confident that Ukraine should not be a member of NATO. And so I just to like flesh it out a little bit. So clearly, like the one of the debates discussions now is what kind of security guarantees the United States and Europe should provide to Ukraine um, once as part of some sort of end to this war. Because, you know, one of the problems, and I know you understand this, but that Ukraine faces is this credible commitment problem that you agree to something with Russia, they can't be sure that Russia doesn't try again later at a time of its choosing. And so how do we prevent that from happening? Short, yeah, of, NATO, short right. of NATO membership. Right. Yeah, understood. And of course, it is important to note, you know, Putin is deterred from attacking NATO members. Um, just as in the United States, President Biden has said over and over again, he's not starting World War III, right? He's, he's, NATO was deterred from directly getting involved in the war against Russia. And, and so you you think, okay, well, the key thing would be then just let's just bring Ukraine into NATO. I I don't know that's a case that I don't think it should be because I, I have to say, you know, when you watch and you see the kind of bravery, the abilities of the Ukrainians, the resilience, you know, I look at that and think, oh, my God, like these would be the best allies ever. Like who would you rather have in, an, in a military alliance than Ukrainians who are. And can I know, ask you, too, because I so agree with that point. But it, like, do you see any parallels to now? It, it or in in a post-war period, like once this war eventually ends, and like the polls, for example. So if you know, if after all of this, the Ukrainians are really committed to joining the alliance and contributing mm-hmm. to it, I mean, there was I, I feel like it, it, with the polls and others, like there was that kind of moral piece of it that they had just fought right. for freedom and everything else, and they're asking to join the alliance. Are the how would you compare the two? Well, I, I mean, they, I think they would certainly have a claim to it. I just, I look at the situation, I just think getting a consensus in NATO would be difficult. Getting two thirds of the Senate to vote for it would be difficult. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be tried um, because I do think that it would ensure Ukrainian security. But I guess my approach has been, since I don't think it's likely I focused instead on, okay, what can we do to make sure that Ukraine can defend itself against a Russia that will continue to pose a threat to it? As long as Russia has claims on Ukrainian territory, then even if there were a settlement to end this war, and I don't believe there's going to be a formal settlement, but if there were a formal settlement, Russia's still there as a threat. And we're going to be, we need to continue to support Ukraine and to continue, um, even if we're not giving a security guarantee, a security commitment that we will do everything we can to help it defend itself. And so I guess that's been my focus just because I I have a hard time seeing how there would be the kind of consensus needed to bring it into NATO. Uh, But they certainly have a claim. uh, And I think it also... um, uh, it, you know, there is a strong case that that's the way that you ensure that Russia doesn't attack it because it then has the full weight of the alliance behind it. But, uh, you know, um, that my Hard focus question. is my folk. Well, my focus has just been on thinking, what can we do to make sure right. that Ukraine has what it needs to defend itself against what's going to be an ongoing Russian threat? Can you so, um, wait really quickly? Just a quick follow-up question on the like unlikely nature of it. Um, was it always a kind? I don't like a slam dunk that 
in previous rounds of enlargement? Was there always broad bipartisan support in the United States on previous rounds of enlargement that's absent now? Or is it just that we're early in the process? And now, I mean, is it possible that you could see the ground shift in a way that would make it more likely? And it's just that we're at the very beginning of these discussions now and people need to um, shift, and uh, you know, that the, the, the mind shift hasn't happened yet. I guess I, I don't know what right. public opinion or the political scene looked like during previous rounds of enlargement. Well, the thing about previous rounds of enlargement is nobody ever thought we'd actually have to come to the defense of these countries. I mean, it was right. sort of easy to take them in, especially that first round, right? Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, that debate in the Senate in 1997, nobody was thinking that we were actually going to have to defend countries. Uh, and I, I I wonder what the Senate would have voted uh, for enlargement if they thought we were actually going to have to do something. And and so I think that that is clearly much more in focus now. Uh, and so I I think it you know you already have the criticisms that are arising about the U.S. support for Ukraine. And so I guess that that's why I'm so focused on how do we make sure we continue to have consensus around supporting Ukraine. Right. Because bringing Ukraine into NATO just seems so far off and so so uncertain that, that that's why I'm more focused on this, what I consider yeah. to be a more near-term policy question. There's also, no, there, there, so a couple of points here. No, number one, um, separate from whether Ukraine deserves to be in NATO or, or has the wherewithal to be in NATO, We'd also have to change the criteria for NATO membership because right now one of the membership criteria are, are peaceful uh, peaceful relations with, with neighbors, and unfortunately, that tragically that doesn't apply to Ukraine and Russia. So we'd also have to fudge the NATO membership criteria. Is my under, it was, is my understanding from speaking to some diplomats on the matter? Um, but but I want to really underline what Jim Goldgaard just emphasized. Right, the, this question of how do you get to a stable uh, arrangement between Ukraine and and Russia. There are two different ways that you, you can get there, right? One, one is to have the full weight of the alliance back Ukraine, which is the out-and-out deterrent situation. The, the other option is, look, there's some kind of implicit settlement, whether it's because a ceasefire, whether it's a formal deal, it doesn't matter. And it's sustained by the balance of power, right, by the distribution of power between Ukraine and Russia. And I think since uh, it's not clear you can generate consensus um, in the U.S. right now or in other countries, other NATO members for Ukraine to be brought into the alliance. And since it's always better to have the wherewithal to defend yourself, they rely upon others because even NATO Article 5 is subject to reinterpretation amidst a crisis. Uh, it's really imperative that Ukraine have the have the ability to defend itself and make Russia realize that any further attempts at conquest, at aggression, will be not even vaguely worth it. And so I, I'm all in favor of continuing to provide arms to Ukraine. I think there's also a conversation to be had about helping the Ukrainian defense industry be self-sustaining that we have not really had uh, the, uh, thus far. And I think it's just hugely important that, that we find paths forward to aiding Ukraine over the long term without necessarily giving Ukraine entree into NATO, because I'm not sure you can get entree into NATO for Ukraine. Yeah, you know, I would, I would, I, what both of you all said, I agree with as well. And I said a lot of that in my paper too. I, I think uh, getting consensus for a lot of different reasons among allies is just not going to happen. So, what we need to do, I think, is put together what, um, is it Yaptahoop Sheffer or one of the former sec gens is 
has been going around town with these uh, this kind of a, agreement. I mean, it's, you know, Ukraine had the, the Budapest memorandum, which didn't work out very well for them. Uh, and so I think whatever we do in terms of security guarantees, it can't just be a piece of paper. It's going to have to be uh, prepositioned equipment in Ukraine, uh, rotating allied forces going through Ukraine for training. It's going to have to be something that uh, is uh, has a lot of credibility to it so it can deter. And that credibility is going to have to be boots on the ground in Ukraine under the training format or, you know, there's a lot of things that we've done in the past where we can have a presence that backs up a, uh, you know, a, a security agreements. It's the word guarantee that's the problem. And the U.S. Senate isn't going to allow us to guarantee, uh, you know, if it's going to be in a treaty format. So we're going to have to come up with ways, uh, probably short of NATO membership, uh, that has some teeth to it. Uh, and, and of course, the top thing would be to make Ukraine into the the porcupine that we always talk about, and to make sure that they can they can do what they can, and to get them into the European Union. Uh, Jim, as you as you had said earlier, I think we're going to have to do that. Um, you know, I think we're at time now, uh, and uh, I wish I had saved my Kenan question for the end because that's such a great ending question. But uh, I just want to tell you all that uh, as someone who's who worked a lot of this stuff from the beginning. You know, I um, I never I never really thought at the time it would rise to the point where it's the it's the object of academic debate and books like this and scholars like you two working on it. And, and so in a way, it's a thrill to see it. And in a way, it's very humbling, too, because, you know, so much of us during the time we had, you know, this is there was such righteousness to this. We were so righteous to this and we were so. Um, confident uh, that this was going to be going in the right direction all the time. And uh, in the 1990s, you could certainly be justified in feeling that way. But as we got into the 2000s, I think we had rested on our oars. And a lot of those early uh, architects of this had gone, had left the government and left the alliance. And so their their replacements uh, were distracted by other things. And I think we just lost uh, the bubble in a lot of ways on how we needed to handle this uh, in terms of moving forward within large as we got closer to Russia. And uh, we ended up with Bucharest Summit and these other things. And uh, and so we lost, uh, you know, we, we lost such a great opportunity. And so here we are. But I'm so happy that you all did your book. And I'm just so proud that you asked me to take part. It's it's tremendous. <laughs> thank well, you. So thank, thank you. you so much for thanks, doing it. Thanks for having us on Brussels Sprout. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.